This is the day which the Lord has made. For the lonely and homebound, for the grieving and dying, and for all those who are afflicted in body, mind, and spirit, especially for... Join us for a live broadcast of Chapel at the LCMS International Center weekdays at 10 a.m. on KFUO. Did you know that your individual retirement account may make the best gift to KFUO? The IRS now allows individuals 70 and a half or older to transfer their required minimum distribution directly to charity and avoid paying the associated income tax. These gifts can provide regular long-term resources to KFUO. If you have questions about making an IRA gift to KFUO, call me, Mary, at 314-996-1518. We'll send a representative out to help answer your questions and help you establish a legacy of giving to your favorite radio station, Worldwide KFUO. morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Interesting Sunday because it is the fourth Sunday of Easter, technically speaking, on the church calendar. Uh, and it is also known in our LCMS as Good Shepherd Sunday. So the theme will be, you'll see some images of shepherds and shepherding in. And it also, of course, is Mother's Day, uh, the uh, Feast of Mother's Day. And uh, I've always said, you know, as a preacher, you can, Father's Day, you don't necessarily have to mention that it's Father's Day, but boy, you better, you better say at least one paragraph about Mother's Day or you're in trouble. So uh, I know the preacher next Sunday and he is definitely going to do that. So let's begin with a word of prayer, if we could. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we come before you this day continuing to give thanks and praise to you for your Son's victory over sin, death, and the grave. And we thank you that by your grace, through faith in him, his victory is also our victory. We pray your Holy Spirit's presence and blessing upon us today as we study your word together. May we continue to grow in our knowledge and our understanding of that word and also of your, your will for us here as your children. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Uh, we're taking a look at the lessons again uh, for next Sunday. And you'll see that, as, as is the case here this time of the year, instead of an Old Testament lesson, we have uh, a lesson from the book of Acts. And so we have a several weeks here where we'll be taking a look at uh, you might say the history of the early Christian church. And Acts, of course, is the only uh, history book in uh, the New Testament. And then you'll also see that the second reading, instead of from one of Paul's epistles or one of the general epistles, is from the book of Revelation. And so that pattern will uh, be continuing. It started uh, right after Easter and continues for several weeks so that we might, in some way, get some, some readings from, from these books. And next Sunday will be no exception. We're going to be looking at Acts 20, verses 17 through 35. This is a, an address that Paul gave to the elders. And when I use the word elder, it's different than we think of our elders today. The Bible has several words that it uses interchangeably for what we today describe as the office of the pastoral ministry. And elder is one of those words. Um, overseer is another one of those words. Shepherd is another one of those words. And we'll see it actually in our lesson here. It, it uses them interchangeably to describe the person who is given the responsibility to proclaim the word of God and administer the sacraments, what we today would refer to as a pastor. Okay? So this address that we're going to read in Acts chapter 20 is Paul addressing the elders from the city of Ephesus. And Paul actually calls them to come to Miletus in order to uh, address them. And it really is a farewell that he is giving to the elders. Um, he has served and lived in Ephesus for three, approximately three years. And it's a very emotional, we, wanna, we don't have the emotional part in our, in our lesson, but afterward, uh, there's even weeping on the part of the elders because they uh, felt, and Paul even said, that they would probably not see one another again. So this was a, a farewell. Kind of like when a pastor, you know, uh, leaves a congregation and goes on to another, another call. And so this is Paul addressing the elders and giving them instruction. It's the only time we have an address of Paul specifically to Christians. Most, uh, well, every other time uh, when Paul is speaking, he is speaking to, uh, you know, before uh, Jewish audience or before Gentiles, uh, many of whom do not believe. This is unique because it is given uh, specifically to Christians, to these elders. So in that sense, it's, it's quite unique. Okay? A uh, little background. I don't know if any of you, I always am amazed here how many people have traveled in this group. 
Uh, anybody been to Ephesus in the, uh, one, two, several, okay. Um, we were blessed just to be there about a month ago, and Ephesus is actually in what is today is Turkey. And it's interesting that Paul was there for, as I said, three years. Ephesus was known uh, for uh, a number of things, but one in particular, it was where the false god Artemis was worshipped. And there was a temple dedicated to Artemis there, which at that time was one of the seven wonders of the world. And so people would come from near and far to worship this false god Artemis there in Ephesus. And when you read in Acts 18 and 19, Paul gets into a whole lot of trouble in Ephesus because he insists that gods made with hands are no gods at all. And they had a real good thing going there in Ephesus because uh, the silversmiths made little, um, what you call representations of this false god Artemis. So you come and you worship at this huge, uh, wonderful, spectacular temple. Then you get almost a souvenir of Artemis to take home and worship Artemis in your own home. And this was a huge business. And Paul has the audacity to say that these little silver uh, gods, small g, uh, that they're taking back are no gods at all. Well, there goes the silver uh, smith industry. And so there was actually a riot that took place in Ephesus. When you read in Acts 19, Paul was not, Paul was not taken into that riot, but his friends were. And uh, in fact, Paul wanted to go into it, uh, and his friends prevented him from doing it for fear he was going to be harmed. And so you can go today. Now, unfortunately, that temple is not still standing because that area of the world is so prone to earthquakes that over time it has just uh, been uh, demolished. Um, the other thing on the good side for Ephesus is that that is where the Apostle John finished out his years. He was exiled to Patmos, which we're going to read the second lesson from Revelation. That's where he received the, uh, the revelation. And, but John lived out as the elder statesman, you might say, in the city of Ephesus. It was sort of the, the bishop for that whole area of Asia Minor with Ephesus as his uh, sort of headquarters, you might say, or host, uh, home city, hometown. And another thing, remember that on the cross, Jesus turns to the disciple John and says, Behold your mother, right? And to Mary, behold your son. And tradition has it that John obeyed that, of course, was obedient to that, and took Mary and uh, lived out his years uh, in Ephesus caring for Mary. And when you go to Ephesus today, uh, you can go and see a house that is purported to be, and I, I think that's a capital P, purported to be, uh, the house where John took care of Mary for the rest of her years. Uh, I'll just say I don't think so. It, that's not the house. I'm not saying it didn't happen, but that's not the house. And so uh, when we were there on our tour, we didn't even, we went past where it was. You could turn off to go to it, and we didn't bother with it. But uh, so there's a lot of history here. Paul had a long time here when you compare it to how long he stayed in other places. 
And uh, so not only Paul, but John also, very significant town for both of them, okay? So that's kind of the background. And so Paul is going to call to Miletus the elders or the pastors from Ephesus, and we think there were a number of congregations in that Ephesus area. And he's going to call them to Miletus and talk with them. So with all that, that's a lot of background. Let's go to Acts 20, starting with verse 17. Now from Miletus, he, that would be Paul, of course, uh, sent to Ephesus and called the elders, that's, we've already talked about that, of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know, and, and that know means, you know, full well, you know full well, how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord. There's, there's the emphasis on the service. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials that happened to me through the plot of the Jews. So just stopping there for a second, it's not only the followers of Artemis that were opposed to Paul, but it's also, ironically, when you think about it, it's the Jews who are opposed to Paul. And why, when you stop and think about it, why is it ironic that the Jews would be opposed to Paul when you think of Paul's background? What was Paul, or what, what is Paul? What was Paul? A Jew, in fact, a Pharisee of Pharisees, and remember how he persecuted the Christian church, but now, of course, he is preaching Christ. And that's why the Jews are so upset with him and oppose him. Now, when you stop and think about this, uh, many times we don't maybe explain why were the Jews so upset. They were upset with Jesus when he walked this earth. And so then why are they upset with anyone who proclaims Jesus, especially the risen Jesus? Well, first of all, did the Jews uh, officially, uh, the Pharisees, Sadducees, did they accept Jesus as the Messiah, as the long-awaited Savior? No, not at all. They, they, uh, the, the official chief priests, scribes, and elders said not only is Jesus not the Messiah, he is drawing people away from God. And he was doing things like his disciples were not observing the Sabbath laws, he was healing people on the Sabbath day. He was associating with public sinners, things that they would say, no way that this guy is the Messiah, okay? Uh, the Messiah as they pictured the Messiah, right? And so in their heart of hearts, they thought they were doing what was good in the eyes of God. They thought that this Jesus is actually leading people away from God not to God, and not realizing that Jesus, in fact, is God in the flesh right in front of them. So that's why wherever Paul went, it was not only other people who were attacking him, but the Jews in particular would even follow him from one town to another and stir up the crowd against him. Now, having said that, were there any Jews who actually were converted and became Christians? Absolutely. In fact, ironically, who are the two guys who come to claim Jesus' body 
after it's going to be, after he's dead on the cross. One guy, remember they put Jesus in his tomb? Joseph of Arimathea. And the other guy came with all the spices, Nicodemus. Now, why is that so ironic? Both of those guys were members of what? The Sanhedrin. The same group that sentenced Jesus to death. And they were Jews who believed secretly and were not in agreement with what the Sanhedrin pronounced in terms of a sentence for Jesus. So I don't want to paint the picture that no Jews believed. There certainly were many that did. How many, we don't know for sure. But by and large, the official line was, Jesus is not the Messiah, and he is leading people away from God, not to God. And so that's why they were always harassing Jesus, okay? All right, so now verse 20. Uh, so this is, again, Paul is still speaking here. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is here as he's talking to these elders from Ephesus. And again, this is going to be their farewell address. What is he doing here? He's kind of reminding them of those roughly three years that he was with them. And notice he's kind of almost giving a defense for how he conducted himself when he was with them. You know, he says here, for example, that he worked in, he was serving in all humility. He under, under, uh, went trials. And notice there, he did not shrink back from declaring anything. And notice he says he was teaching in public and from house to house. In other words, he's saying my teaching was what? It was out in the open, nothing secretive, nothing behind closed doors. It was teaching publicly and from house to house. And both Jews and to Greeks or Gentiles, and so he taught everybody the same thing, which was repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we just were blessed yesterday. We had a wonderful confirmation uh, service. I don't know if any of you were there. Some of you may have been over at Concordia Seminary, Chapel of St. Timothy and St. Titus. And we had 40 junior confirmands this year, which is uh, most we've had in a few years here. That's great to see. But why do I bring this up? Uh, one of the questions they have, the confirmands have, that they have to learn is, what is repentance? And we as Lutherans uh, say there are two parts to repentance, and they're both very important, obviously. One is that I... Uh, am contrite for my sins, and I turn away from my sins. The word repentance literally means to have a change of mind, to have a 180 in your mind, and we would say, of course, about our sin, and turn around and go the other way. So there's, there's that aspect to repentance, that I am contrite, sorry for my sin or sins, but then there's also a very important second part that we don't want to omit ever, and that is I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and that that sin and all sins that I have committed or ever will commit are covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, that there's nothing more that I need to do or anyone else needs to do. It's all been covered. 
And that's what Paul has been preaching here. A repentance, notice, toward God, so away from sin and toward God, and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the basic gospel message. And Paul says, this is what I've been doing. Out in the open, house to house, Jews and Greeks, this is what I've been doing. Okay? Then, uh, let's go to verse 23. Um, except, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I skipped um, 22. I skipped the verse here. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Holy Spirit. It, and that word constrained, it almost means like you're, you're being bound up and tied up and taken to Jerusalem. So what's Paul saying here? That the Holy Spirit is kind of driving him toward Jerusalem, okay? He's going toward Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. Hmm. There's a parallel here. Who else was driven to go to Jerusalem some years earlier? Jesus. And did he know what was going to happen to him there? Yes, absolutely. Remember, he told his disciples, Son of man must go up to Jerusalem and be handed over to the chief priests, scribes, and elders and be killed and rise again on the third day. There's kind of a contrast here. Paul is feeling like the Spirit is driving him to go to Jerusalem, not knowing what's going to happen to him there. And Christ, on the other hand, in, in fact, in Luke 9:51, it says he set his face toward Jerusalem, and he knew exactly what was awaiting him there. And he went, you know, regardless of, of knowing what was going to happen to him there. So Paul says, I don't know what's going to happen to me there. Verse 23, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So Paul goes with that knowledge that the Holy Spirit has been, has been leading him to that conclusion. And you know, in the book of Acts, it's interesting, you see that Paul makes, uh, well, Luke is the author, of course, but you see the Holy Spirit throughout the book of Acts kind of directing Paul and his ministry. And this is yet one more example of that. Okay? Verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Wow, that's quite a statement. What do you, what, what, how would we, uh, he says here in verse 24, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself in comparison to what? Finishing the, the mission or the ministry that God has given to me. And so he's saying, whatever, I don't know what's awaiting me in Jerusalem, but whatever it is, I don't count my life as being above what God has given me to do. Are there people today who have the same, very same outlook, the very same attitude? Yes. Hopefully all of, all of us do as well. In fact, again, I don't mean to sound like a broken record up here, but yesterday in the confirmation, in the confirmation service, there are two of the questions that we asked the confirmands that say, in effect, would you intent, is it your intention to remain faithful to this uh, teaching, the gospel and teaching, and suffer all, even death, rather than fall away from it? And when I had chapel here on Friday, the school chapel, I wanted to make sure that our confirmands saw those too. So we actually went through 
it was a teaching moment because we were going to have confirmation the very next day. And that's, that's a very serious thing to say, isn't it? That should not be taken lightly. And there are, of course, today, even as we are here, there are missionaries around the world who are in physical danger. It is dangerous for them to be a Christian. And unfortunately, they do end up paying uh, the price, the ultimate price of their life, rather than shrink away and fall away from the faith. And so that's, that was Paul's attitude, that my, I don't consider my life to be precious compared to what God has given me to do. And so going on then, and, and that is, again, as he says there, to, to, to uh, testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 25, and now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. So again, as I said earlier, this is the farewell that Paul has for these elders at Ephesus. And we think they had a very strong, close relationship because he was there for three years in their midst. Okay, And he says, I'm not going to see you again, this side of heaven, of course. Verse 26, therefore, in other words, because I'm not going to see you again, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now, what do you think Paul means when he says here, I am innocent of the blood of all. When I look out over all those whom I have served and all those whom I have proclaimed the gospel, I am innocent of the blood of any of them. What do you think? So if they perish, if they don't believe, whose fault is that? It's theirs, right. In other words, he's saying, I proclaim the whole counsel of God. And he's not trying to brag here or anything. He's just saying, and, and we know this. If, let's just review. If someone hears the gospel, law and gospel, or uh, and word of God, and comes to faith, who gets the credit for that? God does, right? Uh, the Holy Spirit. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, now, if someone hears the word of God, law and gospel, and rejects it, who gets the blame for that? They do, right. The person that rejected gets the blame for that, okay? And so Paul is kind of saying that here, in effect, that I am innocent of any blood of any people. In other words, I have proclaimed the whole counsel of God. And ultimately, that's all we can do, isn't it? We might get frustrated if somebody does not believe or come, uh, come to, to faith in Jesus Christ, but we can't argue them into the faith. It's, it's not about uh, what I, necessarily what I say as long as I am, again, saying the word of God, law and gospel. So that's kind of what Paul is saying. He's summing up after these three years, I've preached the declared the whole counsel of God, and I'm not guilty of any of them if any of them end up perishing. Now, verse 28 you will often hear verse 28 spoken. You know when we have an ordination or an installation of a pastor and all the pastors gather around up there and we, we put our hand on the, one by one, put our hand on the head of the, the pastor getting ordained or installed and we say a verse, a scripture verse? This is, next 28 is said at so many of them. It's one of my favorite ones as well. So look at what Paul says here. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit 
has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. We could talk a long time about this verse, but let me ask you this. Doesn't it seem strange to you that Paul says, look at the order that he puts this in. He says in verse 28, pay careful attention. Who comes first? To yourselves and to all the flock. Now, why do you think, why might Paul have said to these, and again, these are pastors from the area of Ephesus. Why do you think Paul says, pay careful attention? Why does he put them first in this, you think? They're the example, aren't they? Uh, hopefully, they're a good example of living the Christian life, a God-pleasing life for all to see. In fact, Paul makes several times makes statements in the pastoral epistles about that very thing, that they are to be examples. And in 1 Timothy 3, it's interesting, one of the qualifications for an elder or pastor is that they be of good reputation uh, with both people inside and outside the church. And if Satan is going to try to attack the church, where might he begin? With the pastor. Yep. It's kind of like, uh, you know, if you get the pastor, uh, you've got the, the flock is next then. And so that's why it's so very important, and I could, we could go on for a long time talking about this, but there are certain times when it can be, well, it can be either good or bad. But there are certain times when pastors do something that is such a public offense. And on the one hand, you could say, well, it's no more serious than any other sin. A sin is a sin is a sin. And that's true. I'm not denying that. But it is such a public offense to the gospel. And again, 1 Timothy 3, uh, Titus chapter 1, and other places talk about some of these things that they will be removed from the office of the pastoral ministry by, in our case, in our, in our polity, by the district president, who ha is the ecclesiastical supervisor. That's not to say that their sin is not forgiven, but it is to say that they are no longer what we would say above reproach, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 3. And this is kind of the same idea that uh, Satan will try, and unfortunately, if you watch the news, you see that it does happen, that pastors or uh, uh, leaders in congregations uh, succumb, and there is some, again, great offensive sin, publicly speaking. So again, all, in one, there's one sense that all sins are equal, but in terms of their public notoriety or their public offense that they have caused, not all are equal. There are, there are varying levels uh, to that. Okay? So again, keep watch over yourselves and to all the flock. And now look at what comes next. Who has made them, these elders, who has made them overseers? Holy Spirit has made them overseers. And that's why we don't have, we, whenever we are calling a pastor, what do we do? We pray. Right? We've been, every Sunday, uh, we've been praying, and I'm, I'm confident people have been praying privately as we've gone through this process, because we want the Holy Spirit to direct us and guide us and lead us. And so we don't, we don't think of the pastoral ministry as a job that you apply for, or as a, you know, some kind of placement service 
uh, job placement service that you get uh, when you graduate uh, from the seminary and so on, the Holy Spirit places as overseers, okay, and as pastors. And notice there that here, the word overseer, and way back in verse 17, we had the word elder, and the very next verb, back down to verse 28, to care for. Now that word, it, it's a, not the best translation, it's actually to shepherd, to shepherd uh, the church of God. And so that you, use, you get those words, as I said, you get overseer, elder, and shepherd used interchangeably here. And so when you think about it, this is, what, this is my favorite word to describe what a pastor does, is shepherd the people, when you think about it. What does a shepherd do for sheep? Takes care of them, but how so specifically? Feeds, right? And hopefully a shepherd uh, feeds with the word of God, right? Uh, protects them from predators, right? Because uh, sheep are relatively defenseless animals. And in speaking of the pastor, we would think of the predators being false teachings or things that are not correct according to the word of God, right? So that idea uh, is a beautiful one of shepherding and caring for the sheep. And so, and another thing that uh, you see there, whose church is it in verse 28? The church of God. Yeah. That's one thing uh, pastors always have to remember. It is not your church. It is God's church. At one time I was corrected and uh, I, uh, you know, I, I said, I was talking to another pastor and I said, that's, uh, I'm not going to use the name, I'll, I'll just say, that's Pastor John Smith's church, okay? And the pastor corrected me and said, well, actually, it's God's church where John Smith is the pastor. You know, I said, okay, fine. You know, but, but that's really true. That's really true. It is not the pastor's church, okay? And sometimes when pastors have been there a long time, it almost becomes referred to as that pastor's church, right? Uh, someone hears about, oh, uh, you know, St. John's, that's, that's, that's where Pastor Smith has been, or Pastor Jones has been, or, you know, whatever. And it almost takes on that, that subtitle. And we have to remember, it is not the pastor's church. It is God's church. Why? It goes on to say, he obtained with his own blood, right? So it's the church that Christ purchased with his own blood. It is not ours, uh, it is not ours either as pastors or as, as lay people either, okay? Now, going up, uh, 29, verse 29, I know, and again, this is Paul speaking, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. He's kind of keeping with that shepherding theme here, isn't he? Now, are, is he talking about actual four-legged wolves that are going to come into Ephesus and, and attack the people? Probably not. I think we're safe in saying that this is an image, and instead of actual four-legged wolves, he's going to be speaking about false teachers who are going to come and try and lead people away from Christ. He's saying, I know this is going to happen. We don't know if he had a direct revelation from God on this or simply is, is concluding that this is what is going to happen. He says, fierce wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things or perverted things to draw away the disciples after them. So notice there, we, we don't know exactly who these guys were, but they were trying to get a bunch of followers to follow them. 
It almost sounds like sort of an egotistical group that was coming in and was going to try and get people to follow them instead of following Christ, right? And so Paul is warning them that this is what's going to happen. So he's saying, keep watch on yourselves and over the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers for the church of God bought with his own blood because after I leave now, these wolf, fierce wolves are going to come in. They're going to try to lead you away. And notice in verse 30 there, even from among their own internally are going to come some of these who are going to try to take people away from Christ. 31, therefore, in other words, because all of this is going to happen, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears, and now I comment, uh, I'm sorry, commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now there's a word we use, uh, we kind of throw that word around sometime in the church, uh, the word sanctified. And it literally it means to be made holy or to be set apart for God's service, okay? And all of us have been made holy and set apart for God's service. Where is it that we were first made holy and set apart for God's service? Baptism, very good. That's, you guys got the good Lutheran answer here. And in fact, we're going to have a baptism uh, coming up at the later service today at 1045. And that's where we are, again, made holy, set apart for God's use. Okay. So Paul says, you have been sanctified or set apart. And now look at verse 33. This is kind of uh, interesting. I coveted no one silver or gold or apparel. Isn't that interesting how Paul throws that in? I, I, in other words, I, I wasn't after your gold or your silver or your fine clothing. Uh, there's going to be a, I saw a commercial for a news uh, feature that's going to be coming up, I don't know which, of 60 Minutes or whatever, about these, it, 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 the story I saw only had two of these television evangelists on, and they both had planes that were $50 million or more. Uh, Kenneth Copeland was one of them, now that I remember, and there was another one I'd never heard of before. And, you know, Paul is saying here, and, and of course their message is that God wants them to have this. It was, it was a, there was a, uh, they had a sermon where, a snippet of a sermon where the guy said, God told me I should have this plane. And, and I thought, well, okay, I'm not going to argue with what God told you. But, uh, um, you know, Paul makes a point here. It was just the opposite for him. He coveted no one's earthly, you know, wealth uh, when he was with them. Uh, verse 34, you yourselves know that these hands ministered or served to my necessities and to those who were with me. Remember, what was Paul's occupation or what was his, you might say, his skilled trade uh, apart from being an apostle? Tent maker, tent maker. And it's, you know, again, he doesn't say it in so many words here, but he's kind of saying, you know, with my own hands, I ministered or served my own necessities and to those who were with me. And so you wonder if he's saying in not so many words here, remember, I was with you for three years. I wasn't after your gold, your silver, or your worldly goods. In fact, with my own hands I labored and took care of not only my own needs, but the needs of my partners who were with you as well. And there was almost a, a bit of a defense here, you know, that no one can say, that I was there as a gold digger in your midst, or I was, you know, out for my own gain 
when I was there. Verse uh, 35, in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so he is uh, reminding, uh, I, really kind of neat, taking care of the weak and the needy in our midst. And that's the thing also that, that we as a church never want to forget. that uh, we, we do that as well. You probably saw, for those of you here at St. Paul's, a clothing drive and emphasis, especially for next week on Mother's Day. Uh, that's in the good news right on the front page. And for us, it's not an either or. It's the gospel and helping people, any, any opportunity, any chance that we can, okay? All right, let me stop there. We're never gonna make it through the three lessons today, but that's all right. Uh, any questions or comments? Just on this one. On, so this is, again, this is unique because it's the only time we have in the New Testament where Paul is talking exclusively to a Christian audience versus non-Christians and Jews, all right? Any questions? All right, I know you wanna get into Revelation here. <clears throat> And uh, that's, as I said, we've got several weeks where we are in the book of Revelation as the second lesson, uh, a scripture lesson for that day. And Revelation, if you listen to Pastor Siva King's sermon today, those of you may have already or are going to at late service, he pretty well said most of what I was going to say about the book of Revelation. Uh, is written in a special kind of language called apocalyptic language. And apocalyptic language is almost like a code, you might say. Oh, I want to be careful with that. But you know how we today, we have email messages and we encrypt the message so that if somebody intercepts it, they can't find out without it being de-encrypted? Uh, apocalyptic language is kind of that way. It uses uh, uh, vivid imagery, dragons, uh, beasts, and uh, the numbers in Revelation are very important. It's written by John, the same John who wrote the Gospel of John and wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, revealed to him on the island of Patmos. And it was the main message is a message of hope to Christians who are being persecuted or are going to be persecuted also in the near future. And the main focal point, I always say, do not get lost in all the numbers and images and beasts and dragons. The main focal point is Christ. And Christ comes through time and time again in this. All right, we're going to do the Reader's Digest version here, I think, of this, because we're uh, time-wise. Um, before this, well, let's just go on and start at verse 9. Uh, and again, this is John speaking about his own experiences. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. All right, that's a mouthful. Let's stop there. Where is John right now in Revelation chapter 7? What has God given him a vision of? The church triumphant, right? The, the, before the throne of God, he says, and, and, and before the Lamb, now who is the Lamb? Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, are just a few people going to be saved? No. Notice there a great multitude that no one could number. 
Um, just a side comment for a second. In, uh, just before this in Revelation, it talks about the 144,000 that are standing before the throne of God. Do we believe that there are only going to be 144,000 people saved? No. And this is, again, uh, an example of how the numbers are used in the book of Revelation. 144,000 is 12 times 12. 12 tribes, the Old Testament church, the 12 apostles, the New Testament church, times 10 times 10 times 10. 12 in both is usually used to represent either or both, the Old Testament church, the New Testament church. 10 is a number of completeness, as is 3. And so the message that is conveyed by 144,000 is the entire Old Testament church, and the entire New Testament church are visioned here before the throne of God. Now, I always have to add that uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses for a long time uh, believed and, and taught that there are only going to be 144,000 people saved until, when do you think? They hit 144,000. <laughs> That's not your greatest evangelism motivation, right? Only 144,000. We're at 145 right now. Uh, so then they changed their, uh, changed their teaching on that. But this is a, just an example of the way that numbers are used in the book of Revelation. So obviously the, this verse would, would say, no, it's not just 144,000. It's a multitude that no one could number. And notice the great thing there. It's from every nation, all tribes, peoples, and languages. You know, uh, uh, it might disappoint some Lutherans. There are going to be uh, many other people there as well, uh, not just us. Standing before the throne, before the Lamb. Now, what's the apparel? Clothed in white robes. So why are, they, why are they pictured as being clothed in white robes? Purity, purity. Let's stop just for a minute. What are some times that we are clothed in white? And I, I, mean, I don't mean when you wear a white shirt or a white dress or something like that. But what special occasions on this earth in the church are people clothed in white? What's the first one? Baptism. Here we go again with baptism, right? There's usually a white garment. Again, it doesn't have to be, but many times there is a white garment. Why? It, it, it symbolizes, I guess you'd say, or, or communicates to us, again, that purity, that righteousness of Christ in which we are clothed when we are baptized, right? And that's why it's white and, and usually is white. Then what's the next time? that we think about someone being clothed in white for, uh, for a special rite of the church. Confirmation, right? We just had this yesterday. And again, it's the idea, they are here, what are they doing? They are publicly, verbally confessing their baptismal faith. When they were baptized, I think most all of them as an infant, remember we asked the congregation, sponsors, parents in the congregation, to answer on behalf of or instead of them signifying what God works in and through baptism. Now when they are confirmed, they give public, uh, they themselves with their own mouth confess their baptismal faith. So they're, again, clothed in white, that righteousness of Christ. Now you may have to think about this one. When is a third time that you are clothed in white Oh, marriage? Well, it, oh, oh, that's a good one. I hadn't thought it. All right, what's the fourth time? This is only the, this is only the woman. I'm thinking for everybody. 
Everybody, that's, that's exactly right. Uh, maybe KFU can edit that out, I don't know. Uh, when, is the, when is the third time, though, and I will tell you this, um, I'll give it away. If I, can anybody think of it? We, funeral, yes. How so? The pall that goes over the casket, right, is white. And again, that's done very intentionally to say that the funeral service is the culmination or the fulfillment of the baptismal service. And to remind all of us who are there that that person is clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Very good. And then here we are before the throne of God, and there's the church triumphant again, wearing white robes, symbolizing that very same thing. Now, how about palm branches? They, they got palm branches. Where else have we uh, seen palm branches used? On Sunday, of course. The palm branch signified victory. Uh, many times when a, a general or a, a military leader uh, or even a king uh, had a military victory, they would welcome back in town and the people would wave palm branches. It, it became synonymous with victory. So what's the victory in heaven that all these people are celebrating? Victory over sin, death, and the grave, right? They're all, they're clothed in white celebrating that, okay? And so then we go on, uh, and verse 10, and crying out, notice there, with a loud voice. I mean, this is not timid. They are shouting out, salvation belongs to our God. It's his, right? It's, it's his to give who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, which would be Christ, of course. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders. Now, we won't get into the elders too much here. Uh, if you go back to uh, Revelation 4, verse 4, there are 24 elders mentioned. And so, again, 12 and 12, Old Testament church, New Testament church, leaders, we think, in both Old Testament and New Testament, or at least that's significant. By 24, and the four living creatures, if you go back to Revelation 4, verse 6, there are these creatures that are mentioned there. We think they were angelic type of, of beings. Uh, they had uh, both human and animal-like faces, and we think, again, they were angelic creatures, just like the cherubim and seraphim and so on. And notice there, they all fall on their faces before the throne and worship God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. You know, uh, this may be just for a second here. There's usually that spot in our communion liturgy, liturgy where we say, therefore, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. We laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying. And I have had more than one person come up to me and say, that's my favorite part of the church service. Why do you think? They're thinking about their departed loved ones who are before the throne of God, praising God, even as we simultaneously are here on this earth praising God in the very same way. How do we know? The book of Revelation shows us that, right? So it's, it's that, you know, the worship here on earth, our, uh, by comparison, meager worship here on earth, comparison to that is but a foretaste of, of what is yet to come. And 
That is kind of a neat thing, isn't it? That, that the church is not bound by time, and neither is the worship of God. And it's not bound by space either. It takes place throughout this world and even in heaven. Okay, so just a little aside. Um, then let's go to verse 12. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 13. Then Michael addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Now, by the great tribulation, we don't know if there, there is a specific great tribulation that is to take place right before Christ returns. It sometimes is referred to as Satan's little season. Uh, I, for the life of me, don't know why um, this is going to happen. But Satan, it indicates in the book of Revelation, will be let loose, unleashed. He's, un he's leashed right now, restricted, but will be unleashed for a while. Uh, Luther wrote that he was glad he did not think he would be alive during that day, when it will be all that we can do to hang on to the faith, let alone try to evangelize others. And so we don't know whether it means that or just in general is talking about the tribulation of life in this world. But going on there, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So that's a wonderful, beautiful way of saying it's the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from, all, from sin and from all unrighteousness. What's, the, what's kind of the paradox there? Usually, what does blood do? If I've got a white shirt on, what does blood do? Stains it. And you, and you try your hardest to get, get that stain out. This is just a way of picturing, again, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin, makes us pure, okay? Um, verse 15, therefore, in other words, since that's true, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne, which would be God, of course, will shelter them. A, another way of putting this is will spread out his tent over them and, and sort of be their shelter, okay? At that point, it's almost like talking about the tabernacle in the Old Testament. 16, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. So what happens with all the uh, sin-caused imperfections of life on this earth? They're all gone. They're all gone. Uh, verse 17, for the Lamb, that's Christ, in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Here comes that shepherd theme. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Isn't that a comforting, a wonderful verse? Uh, we use this, uh, many times we'll read this at a funeral or at a committal, graveside committal, because, again, it reminds us so clearly of the fact that life in this world, with all of its sin-caused problems, cares, concerns, will be a thing of the past uh, for us one day. And that's the day that, that God calls us home. Okay? Let me stop there. Any questions or comments? We'll have to quickly get through the gospel lesson, but I, wanna, I don't want to, if any of you have a question or a comment on the Revelation text. All right. Let's finish up then with John 10. And in John 10, sometimes it's called the, the Good Shepherd chapter. Earlier on, Christ... Uh, uh, speaks of himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. We're going to look at a little bit further on in that chapter, starting with verse 22. So verse 22, 
At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. The Feast of Dedication uh, is not an Old Testament feast. It actually is, is the Feast of Hanukkah, which we, is still observed today. It, it, it celebrates the rededication of the temple in the year 164 B.C. After the temple had been uh, desecrated by the Seleucids, and there was a, a revolt, it's called the Maccabean Revolt, and God's people restored the temple and restored right worship. And ever since 164 B.C., they had been doing that. It takes place in December, and so that's why John writes it was winter. And Jesus was walking in a temple in the colonnade of Solomon. These colonnades were on the sides of the temple, and they were, had a roof over them, gave shelter, and so on. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. So what's the real problem here? Them. Yeah. They're, they're trying to put it on Jesus. You know, don't keep us in suspense any longer. He hasn't been trying to keep them in suspense. He's been doing miracle after miracle after miracle, testifying to who he is, and they simply will not believe. They simply will fail to recognize that he is the Messiah. So he goes on, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. You know, John later, it, in fact, it's uh, in chapter 20, verse 31, and uh, this is another one that our confirmands uh, memorize, where uh, John writes, Jesus did many other signs which are not recorded in this book, in other words, in the Gospel of John, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and believing you might have life on his name. So what did the miracles do? John calls them signs. And just like a road sign is not the end all itself, it points to something much more important. So also these miracles of Christ were not the end in themselves. Sure, it's great if a blind person can see or a deaf person can hear, but that isn't the end in itself. They pointed to the performer of the miracle, the person who did the miracle, as being the Son of God. Okay? And, uh, but again, there is unbelief. You know, I, uh, sometimes people will say something like, oh, I wish I could have been alive when Jesus was here. If I would have seen those miracles, I would have believed. Well, look how many people were and walked right away, didn't believe. I'm, frankly, I'm glad I'm alive right now. When we've, got, when we've got the Bible, we've got, you know, the whole collection of God's Word, and have put, it is put to, God has put it together for us. And again, I don't, I don't necessarily think that it was, would have been easier to believe back then. Okay, the reason they don't believe they're not among his sheep. My, now, verse 27 is really, what a verse. My sheep hear my voice. Again, when's the first time we hear his voice? Baptism, that's correct, baptism, very good. It's not a trick question. <laughs> baptism. And I know them, just like a shepherd knows his sheep, I know them, and they follow me. Look at verse 28. I give them eternal life. Again, it's a gift. It's not something we earn or deserve. He gives it to us, and they will never perish, 
and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So we will never cease to exist, we will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, I always add, can we as sheep, though, turn our back on the shepherd and reject him and walk away? Unfortunately, yes. We do not believe in a once saved, always saved theology. Uh, some church bodies do. We do not. Uh, scripture seems to make it clear that, unfortunately, we do have the ability to reject and turn away from him. Okay? Um, verse 29, to finish off. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And they are one not only in the person of the triune God, but also one in purpose and one in will. Jesus said, I've come not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And he did. All right? Don't have time for questions. Sorry, we've got to, we've got to run. So let's close in with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you.